Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here today. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here. And if you're visiting with us, as Ashley said, we are delighted uh, to have you here. We're in the middle of uh, the series on the Sermon on the Mount. And before we jump into that, I want to tell you a little story about a different text in Matthew. It's the story of the loaves and fishes. It's when Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And the story goes something like this. The crowds went out to the lonely place, to the desert, to, to hear Jesus teach. And they'd stayed there all day. And his disciples came to him and said, Jesus came to Jesus and said, hey, these people are hungry. We need to send them away. And Jesus said, you feed them. And one of the disciples responded with, well, that would, that would cost like eight months wages. We can't do that. That's too much money. And then there's this little boy that enters the story. And the boy says, well, I have, some, I have some lunch. I have fish and I have loaves. And he gives it to Jesus. There's this book called The Row by Doug, Douglas Lloyd. And um, it's, it was turned into a movie in like the 60s. It's a fantastic book. And, and he tells this story. And he, he wants to, to, to demystify the story. He wants to disenchant the story. Uh, when I was growing up, what I, what I heard, what I remember, what I, my experience and my imagination is that Jesus takes that brown sack lunch from that little boy and he blesses it. And then he hands it to his disciples and the disciples just keep pulling out fish, keep pulling out bread. Douglas Lloyd has a different take on it. His take is... Everybody knows that when you go out to the desert, to the lonely places, there's, there's no 7-Elevens out there. There's no McDonald's. And so you got to be prepared when you go out to places like that. And so everybody's got lunch. Everybody's prepared. But they don't really want to share. Because I brought my special lunch. And so the miracle is not the basket that never seems to run empty. Jesus providing more than enough for everyone. It's it's a miracle of changed hearts. It's a miracle of witnessing sacrificial giving and being moved in your heart to do the same. And in my life, I think I've gone back and forth to which, which interpretation of the story has more power to me. And it's just kind of the, the place of the life I'm in. Maybe the miracle is, is the changed hearts of the crowd. Maybe the miracle is the fact that what little we give, God takes and does amazing things with. I'm pleased to tell you that every year, if you're, if you're new, brand new, every year we take a, a restoration offering at the end of the year. It's a chance for us to, to ask you to give beyond your means, to give deeper than you normally do, to, to help fund the work of this church. And this year, in 2023, the Highland Church gave $369,124.99. And I, on behalf of the, the elders and the leaders and the ministers of this church, I want to say thank you. I want to say thank you because it means that children in Myanmar are going to have filled bellies today. And children in Abilene, and that, that gap in the summer when there's no school lunches, and that's the primary calories that they get week to week, they're going to have full bellies. 
And I want to say thank you because in, in E2 Brazil, there are prisoners that have been set free that are coming to a place where they can find dignity and they can find jobs and they can find community and they can find respect. And that exact same thing is happening in the prisons not more than 25 miles outside of this city. In fact, there will be men that give their lives to Christ in baptism today because of the work of this church. I want to say thank you because there's a million different ways that our, our babies and our children and our teens are experiencing the kingdom of God in profound ways. Our college students who are here for just a short time, but we send them all over the world with a little bit of DNA from Highland about what it means to love God. And I'm, I'm of the mind right now, I'm in the season of my life where I, I, I believe that that disciple kept reaching its hand into the bag and there just kept being more and more and more. Look what God can do. Look what God can do with the generosity of open hearts. Let's pray together. Father God, we're grateful for this time and this space. I'm grateful for the, the table with the unexpected host. I'm grateful for the worship that lifted my heart be thou my vision. Father, help us to see you. See your hand in the work that we feel we are called to. To see, to see your presence in the lives of our brothers and sisters as we greet one another. As we celebrate the, the highs and lows of this week. And Father, as we turn our hearts and minds to your word, I pray you pour through me the gift of preaching. That I might speak your truth and love to these your people. It's together that the church says, amen. So we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to make a challenge for you this week. I did this two weeks ago. I want to challenge you again. Read the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety. It starts in Matthew chapter 5. If you have the red letter Bible, just read it till it turns black. That's as far as you have to go. It is, it is the most condensed and dense part of Jesus' teaching. It might be the most important part of the book of Matthew. It might be the most important part of the entire New Testament. Some seasons for me, it absolutely is. So I want you this week to read it. Just read it straight through. It'll only take you more than 15 minutes. Read it straight through. And if you really want to take those words and put them into a place of practice, begin to memorize it. That's a practice I, I picked up two weeks ago. I've, I've begun to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm, I'm doing my best to, the words don't always stick in my mind. It's, I'm, it's harder than it used to be. But, but, but try to memorize those words, because when, when Scripture is written on your heart, no one can take it from you. No one can take you the words that are written on your heart, and they will come out in a place where you least expect it when you're talking to somebody, and they need to hear a word from God. There it is. When you're in the darkness of the night and you feel alone, there it is. So I want to challenge you to, to dig into your Bible. Matthew chapter 5, till the, till the letters turn black. Today, hear the word from the Lord. You can remain seated. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and, and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and then put it under a, a bushel basket. Rather, they, they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
In the same way, let your light shine. Let your light shine before everyone so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Let me, let me run up to where we are in the Sermon on the Mount. I was grateful for Randy, who preached last week. I'm going to try to put the pieces of that sermon back together so that we all can make sense of it. Um, just kidding. We have the best bench and of any church in the world. Uh, I need to confess. I'm lucky if I'm like, well, Stormit told this story. He said, I'm lucky if I'm like the, the top four preachers here at Highland. And one of the elders looked at him and said, what makes you think you're in the top 10? And I, I feel that at times. I loved what Randy said. When it feels like you're at the place where you're on the bottom, you're blessed. I loved what he said. When you're experiencing grief, it is to remind you that you, you have loved and you have been loved and that, that is the natural end of your love is, is grief. And when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it means that you're looking for a, you've been given the sight to look for a world that does not exist around you. And so you're, you're longing for it and you're seeking for it. And these aren't the kind of blessings that we expect. The kind of blessings that, that those readers, those first hearers would expect is, is, is blessed are the powerful and blessed are the rich because they have everything. Or maybe blessed are those who floss for they will keep their teeth. <laughs> blessed are those who invested in their 401ks in their 20s for they will be able to retire. I saw a kid in United like four weeks ago and he had a handful of flowers and a tie and a box of chocolates and this look of eagerness on his face. And I thought to myself, that kid is blessed. One of my favorite preachers, Barbara Brown Taylor, she calls this the Ferris wheel. She calls it the Ferris wheel, that the God is big enough to provide when you are at the top of the Ferris wheel and God is big enough to provide when you are at the bottom of the Ferris wheel. Either way, Randy said, you are blessed. And so as Jesus is going through speaking about this kingdom that doesn't look like the world's kingdom and he says it's those that mourn that are blessed, those that are sad that are blessed, those that are meek that are blessed, those who are pure in heart that are blessed, those who long for righteousness that are blessed. But then at the last one of these blessings, he turns his attention back to the church that Matthew is writing to that's been kicked out of a synagogue that's trying to find its identity. He turns his face back to you and he looks you dead in the eye and he says, blessed are you when you suffer in my name. Brothers and sisters, he's speaking to us. And what you have to notice in the text is what you have to see is that, that you that he uses is blessed when you are persecuted for doing the right thing. That, that you stays with us because he immediately turns to say, not only are you blessed, but you are salt and you are light. Jesus turns and captures the heart of the Sermon on the Mount in this text. The citizens of the kingdom must be salt and light, and our goal is to spread to the world with the light of the gospel. So let's talk about this for a minute. Salt. I mean, these aren't complicated metaphors. You guys, this is easy to understand. 
If a salt loses its saltiness, that doesn't make sense to us because the most of the salt we use is very pure salt. But, but in the ancient Near East, the first century, the region probably mixed, had salt that was mixed with gypsum, and so they were little kind of rocks. And the sodium chloride, the salt would be leached out of those rocks, and so it's very possible that you would, you would put that salt into a, a food or, or something else, and all you'd be left with is the rocks. It wouldn't be any good, and you'd, you'd just throw those out the window. There's no use for that after this. The salt we use has, is so pure, you can, you can take your salt shaker at home and you can dip it into water and stir it up and it disappears. It's used and then you, you can keep doing that until it fills a little sediment at the bottom and you think, oh, okay, well, we've, we've saturated the water with salt, but if you pour more water into that jug, it's gonna disappear. And so the idea of losing saltiness, it might be a little strange for us, but you have to realize that there's just this impurity, those little rocks that we don't have were at the bottom. And all that's left for that gypsum is to be thrown out. It's good for footpaths and little else. And there's like a dozen different ways that scholars have talked about the, the benefit of salt, what Jesus is referring to here. Maybe salt makes things taste better, and that's true. And salt is a preservative. It keeps things from rotting. That's true. And then salt makes things holy, and that's, that's also true. And, and, and salt does make things taste good. I found a new condiment that I absolutely love. It's called sriracha. Discovered this about 10 years ago. Sriracha goes on everything now. Sriracha has replaced ketchup in my lectionary of condiments. Uh, there's nothing that ketchup can go on that sriracha doesn't make it even better. Hamburger, sriracha. Eggs, sriracha. French fries, sriracha. Everything tastes better with sriracha. There is a sriracha crisis, by the way. The one factory in the world that's making sriracha has shut down the last two years. When I found that out, I went to... Sam's and I bought a case of sriracha. <laughs> the rest of you are going to be out and I will have my supply, I am fine. Uh, salt makes things better. If, if you want to test, this is the other kind of experiment you can do with this. Uh, go to McDonald's for lunch today and order a hamburger and ask for no salt, no pickles, and then order french fries with no salt and you will hate that meal. You will despise. That'll be the worst hamburger you've ever had in your life. Because salt makes things taste better. And this is where my, my introverted heart begins to squirm, right? Because what this says to me is that you need to be the thing that makes the life taste better. And I don't love being the thing that makes parties better. I don't love being the, sometimes I just want to be quiet. And that's okay. That's okay. I think what this text is saying is, is not that you have to be the life of the party. Just make the conversation better. Just make the person that you're talking to feel slightly more important. Make the person that you're speaking to on the phone see it feel a little bit more seen. Just make the world a little bit better. Salt is a preservative. First century didn't have refrigerators. And so any meat, the only way to preserve it was either to keep it alive or eat it. Right? That's why when you kill the fatted calf, you invite the whole village to the party because all that meat's got to be eaten in the next three or four hours or it's going to go bad. But the other solution was to just put as much salt on it as you can and that'll keep it from rotting. You are the thing that will keep the world around you from rotting away. You are the thing that will keep the world from rotting around you. 
Salt also has this sense of holiness. And Leviticus 2 uh, instructs grain offerings are to be made with the salt of the covenant of your God. And there's something there about those two ideas when we tie them together. Salt, you are the thing that keeps the people around you from rotting from the inside out. And you are the thing that connects them to God. I mean, the, the universe is rotting away. Our bodies are rotting away. I've, I've come to that point in my life now where I no longer choose to run, I have to run, because if I don't, then I'm going to lose the ability, right? All the things that used to I take for granted, I now have to work at because my body is slowing down, and I, I despise that. And if you've ever seen roadkill or anything else on the side of the road, you know it's two or three days before the microbiome inside of your gut turns against you and begins to colonize all of you. You bloat up. It's three days before you stink. I mean, this is everything. This is, this is flowers that begin to die and wither. This is rocks that get ground down into sand and then to nothingness. Even the universe itself is just slowing down. The heartbeat of the universe is, is decreasing beat by beat, moment by moment, and it will all be still one day. Except for those things that preserve the life that God created. And this idea of salt, that Jesus says, it comes with a warning. Jesus has all these blessings for, for those in, in hard circumstances and the, the blessings that are unexpected for those that are, are being a disciple, but it's almost as if Jesus needs to put a woe right here in the text. Blessed are these folks and blessed are those folks and blessed are you when it's not good for you, but woe to the salt that loses its saltiness because it's going to be thrown out with the garbage. And a disciple that loses that, that focus on God. Woe to them that never gets it back. Jesus says you are salt. And Jesus says you are light. And I'm kind of curious, what kind of light? What's the quality of the light you are showing? I don't know if you ever got dressed in the dark, but... There's some mornings where I'm trying to figure out in the dark what the difference is between my black socks and my blue socks. And to be frank, I can't tell. And so I go into the bathroom and I turn on the light and I'm holding the two of them together and I'm, I'm certain I don't know which is which. I, sometimes I have to go out into the sunlight to tell if these are blue socks or if these are black socks because the quality of light matters. And Jesus says you were light. Now, uh, later in the text, later in the book of Matthew, Jesus is, is going to say, don't perform your acts of righteousness before others. But, but here in the text, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and, and glorify your Father. And there's kind of a rub there. There's, there's some tension there that we have to hold in the sense of, of how do these actions make sense? How much of this is, is doing what we can to glorify God? And how much of this is, is to have to be careful that we're not just doing this so everybody sees us? It's kind of like that Instagram, I think it's a meme. I don't know if it actually exists, but maybe it does, of that, that student that decides to, to give a, hand, a, a sandwich to somebody sitting on the street, and so as they go to hand the sandwich, they have in their other hand the cell phone, and they're, they're just trying to get the selfie just right. 
I, I saw this in California. And, and I spent a lot of time wrestling with that and thinking about that. Is this, is, this, is, this, is this let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds? Or is this don't perform your acts of righteousness before others because you get your reward right then and there? And the truth is that there is a moment when, when you are transformed. There is a moment when you are transformed by the power of God's grace and by the power of God's love. And you realize the truth of what God cares about is your heart and not your ego. And so these kind of Christian Instagram that flex on acts of charity, I can't tell if that's the moment of transformation for them. And I know that because I've experienced that. And, and I think a lot of us have experienced that. You go to the third world and you experience poverty for the first time. You see the face of true evil in someone else and you experience the grace that happens and you, you see that transformation and it ha you can't help but it changes you. And I want to mark those moments in my life. And for generations younger than me, the way you mark that is a picture. It just is the way it is. And so I can't tell if, if that girl on the street, if that boy on the street is doing some sort of Instagram flex of Christian charity or if they're just immature. I said that wrong. I can't tell if that's transformation. Then marking that moment as, as, as a moment of God or if it's just immaturity. So I'm just gonna believe it's transformation. I'm gonna move on. But the question that this makes us ask, the question of, 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 of what kind of quality of light do you have is, is what is the foundation of your ethic? What is the foundation of your choices? What is the, the, the foundation that you're building your life on? Is it rock or is it sand? In the 1850s, an, an author wrote this book. It was called Carl Island. And it was, it was a story of a bunch of British schoolboys who were shipwrecked on an island. And, and while they were there, they, they built this kind of fantastic society based on love and equality. And, and the story goes that they kind of, they kind of, it kind of becomes like Gilligan's Island. You remember in Gilligan's Island where they had all of this, like, like a whole neighborhood built out of bamboo and reeds, right? Like they build this beautiful place that you'd really want to live in. In the 1960s, about 110 years later, William Golding comes along and he writes a novel with the exact same plot. His novel is called Lord of the Flies. And it's the exact same plot, except it ends a little bit differently. If you read it in high school, you know what I'm talking about. The, the boys caught on the island, they end up hunting each other and killing each other. Because they don't trust each other. And distrust is at an all-time high in our society. And maybe it's rightfully so. People don't trust institutions. They don't trust politicians. They don't trust, they don't trust preachers, pastors. They don't trust anything that, 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 that smells like it might be disingenuous. And, and I'm nervous about this because we're entering into another political season this year. I saw in the New York Times this poll that said more people than ever wish that the election was already over. And I agree. And I want us to give us a word of caution because this year with the rise of artificial intelligence and, and deep fakes where they, they mimic somebody's voice and they mimic somebody's face to the point where you can't tell that it's fake, we need to be careful what we read and what we see and what we believe. Because bad actors are going to lie and cheat so that they can have power. 
And this is less about optimism and cynicism. This is less about kind of that, that, that sense of lostness in our, in our politics or what kind of island that we form as much as it is about light. And what's the quality of light that you reflect? Light's such a common resource in our world that we very rarely experience true darkness, utter darkness. I don't know if you've ever been in a, a deprivation tank. It's a, it's a saltwater bath that you, you sit in and then they, they close this lid over you and it's completely black and it's soundproof. It's just you floating in this water. In utter darkness, you lose sense of equilibrium. If you're standing in total darkness, you can't see the horizon anymore, any lines. And so you're, it begins to play with your ears and you can't keep your balance. And the, the mental map of the room changes. You think you're four feet away from the wall, but it's right smack there, right? And your eyes are so desperate to find light that you will hallucinate images. Your mind will just create up images because it can't stand utter darkness. And this metaphor is everywhere in Scripture. You can't escape it. God is light, and him is there, knows darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. In Ephesians 2, God's people are light, and let your light shine before others so that they might see your Father who is behind it all. And I wonder what's the quality and the character of our light. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was reflecting on the church in Germany. And he writes, discipleship is as visible as light in the night, as a mountain in the flatlands. To flee into the invisibility is to deny the call of Jesus. Any community of Jesus who wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. So being salt and light is our response to the moral decay and darkness around us, but more importantly, we do this because this is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus was. And the only way this works, the only way this works, the only way this works for us here at Highland is if we are radically transformed. Not informed, not encouraged, although those matter. Bone and sinew transformation on an ontological level, who we are, and a functional level of what we do. Nothing else. And what Jesus is calling to you is not easy. That kind of radical transformation will take focused thought, intentional effort, and it's not gonna last a weekend. It's going to last your life. But look what happens when someone steps into the light. I was with a group of friends uh, this week and we preacher friends we had preacher camp and uh, we had a, a time together and we told our stories and we shared one another's struggles and our burdens and we uh, we talked about you and and we uh, good stuff good stuff um, but it was it was one night after we had a chance to talk it's the kind of conversation that you could only have around a fire pit and we talked about the generational curses that we experience and one of the men told about his father and the, the abandonment that his father 
gave. He came in and out of his life. And every time he came in, he felt bad. He, he brought gifts, but then sure enough, he would leave again. And the disaster that left on him and his brothers. And then he told about his own story and his own marriage and his own kids. And there's been more than one time where that man has been tempted to cut and run, to walk away because it was difficult. And he chose to stay. Sometimes being salt and light isn't having the, the most wise answer to a difficult question. Sometimes being salt and light in the, the context that you're in isn't being the, 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 the most morally superior person in the room. Sometimes it's just choosing to stay, especially when it's hard. What Jesus is calling to you is not easy, but it, it, it will be the best and most difficult thing that you will ever do with your life. And if you're here, if you're part of our church and you, you've committed your life to Christ in baptism and you've, you've found the transformational power of seeing what the Spirit can do to you, then I want you to know that you're doing a hard thing. We're doing a hard thing. But we're doing it together. Would you please stand for our benediction? Highland, this week, wherever you're at, at your job, at your house, wherever you're at, may you be light. May you reflect the beauty of God's grace and love to anybody you meet. Highland, whatever you do this week, may you be salt. May you be the best thing that happens in someone else's day. May you be filled with God's presence and go in peace.